Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. <laughs> I just learned something. Oh, I'm having fun now. So we're going to unravel the mystery, but first, let's unravel some history. Oh, God. Go ahead. Don't be a hater. Why do, why do I feel like I'm in the reading rainbow right now? Sick rhymes. <laughs> Jesus. Hey, Duncan. Yo! So, today we're talking about crime. I really enjoyed researching this one. This I really like when I get to look into something where I sort of was vaguely familiar with the concept. Oh, yeah. Okay. But didn't know much about it. Like, I've heard about the Lindbergh baby. That's mm. a thing that I have heard. I've heard those words in that order. Yes. But I don't know what they mean. I know that it's, there's like a crime was involved. I know it was a long time ago, but I don't understand. I didn't know any details. Yeah, it's something to do with a baby made out of cheese that was stolen. It was a crime. It's, it was a charcuterie situation. <laughs> There are things that we're all familiar with as concepts, and sometimes you don't know why we're all familiar with them. Why is this thing so famous? Like but, the Kardashians. And that's a good example. They, I think it'll take future generations to figure out why the Kardashians are famous. None of us know, even now. Right. It's a huge mystery. Mm. It's a mystery we will not cover on Ever. Miffy. <laughs> yeah, I, I will veto in the Discord. Not happening. <laughs> so we're going to talk about crimes of the century. Mm. And when we say the century, we're talking about mostly the last century. Ah. Mostly crimes of the 1900s. So we're taking the 1900s as our starting century. And there are so many. I made a big list. Mm. And then we're going to cover three. Sweet. Because these are much more interesting than I thought they would be. I thought, yeah, I can skim over this one and I'll just tell the basics of this one. But then once I started researching it, I was like, there's a lot here. Hmm. And so we went deep dive into these three cases. So this first case appears on literally every crime of the century list that you will find. Hmm. And it should, because it's a fascinating story. A hundred years ago, aviators were American heroes. Mm -hmm. Airplanes were still an exciting new technology, and each aviation milestone was greeted as enthusiastically as a new brand of shiny mustache wax. Like every time one of these flyboys or some fly women. Uh, achieved even the most modest new goal. Everyone acted like it was a huge deal and pretty much declared a national holiday. Hmm. Today was the first day that a plane ever flew over more than three trees on a Wednesday. <laughs> Whiskey at 9 a.m. Woo! I can get behind that. Yeah, that, well, that was probably standard for the time. That, that's yeah. just breakfast. 1800s, yeah. Whiskey and an egg. But seriously, I don't think the cult of personality that formed around these larger-than-life aviators can be overstated. Hmm. We still know their names. Amelia Earhart, Howard Hughes, Charles Lindbergh. Mm -hmm. Americans in the early 1900s were super horny for pilots. Mm. And when I started researching this episode, I did not have a good explanation for it. Mm. Like, I get that these were impressive milestones. But as far as I could tell, they were mostly feats of technology. Right. Charles Lindbergh didn't swim across the Atlantic dragging his airplane behind him. He just sat in a seat and pushed buttons and pulled levers. And if I were a woman, I would definitely fuck that guy because he's a super person. Holy shit. The guy that swims across the ocean? Dragging his plane? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Like, for that, whiskey at 9 a.m. Whiskey at 9 a.m., fucking Coke at 9 p.m., and a couple hookers to go to bed. A nightcap. A hooker nightcap. Who doesn't have a hooker uh, Anyone who's dragging a plane across the ocean already did his cocaine at 9 a.m., I'm sure. <laughs> but after deep diving into this stuff, now I get it. Hmm. Because the technology was amazing for the time, but it was also super sketchy. Really? We covered Amelia Earhart in our Missing Persons episode, and again, her disappearance, not a mystery. It was definitely a murder, and the perpetrator was a go-kart-sized quote-unquote aircraft made from tinfoil and dreams. 
Really? Plus the weather. Oh, okay. This raindrops and delusion killed Amelia Earhart. <laughs> Did you see her plane, though? I don't think we ever... I didn't show you a picture of it, and I hadn't even bothered to really look. The Lockheed Vega 5B, which is what she was flying in, mm-hmm. looks like a ceiling fan attached to a cigar. <laughs> the entire frame of an early 1900s aircraft was slightly bigger than the pilot's lap. What? I'm slightly exaggerating, but not by much. These things were often slapped together from spare parts. They were frequently transported in pieces and assembled hours before a flight. So it took guts or insanity to strap into an airplane from the experimental era. And as a result, successful pilots and aviators became the influencers of their time. They were daredevils. That's nuts. And all right, I get it. But still, what the fucking fuck? If I saw three guys stapling together my fucking aircraft before I was going to fly over the frigging Atlantic Ocean, I'd be like, <laughs> no, 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 guys. No, I'm pretty sure you need to weld that and fuck off. No, see, you were lucky if you had three guys to do it. You didn't have like a team, like a pit, like the guys in NASCAR. It was like you and hopefully a buddy. Like if you, you know, bought him some whiskey at 9 a.m., he might come out and help you put it together. And it probably was put together looking like someone who had whiskey at 9 a.m. had helped. Fuck that noise. These were fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants, sketchy-ass scenarios. Okay, flying-by-the-seat-of-your-pants now becomes a literalism, thanks to that visual. Exactly. All right. And that's why these guys and ladies, mostly guys, were so popular. Hmm. Charles Lindbergh was like Kim Kardashian and LeBron James rolled into one awkward, introverted weirdo. (laughs) So not either. Not that there's anything wrong with introverted weirdos. I want to make that clear. These are my people. Yes, I'm one of them. But, you know. But he was considered a somewhat shy and reluctant celebrity. Hmm. His reserved nature seemed to run counter to his ambitions. As a young pilot, he called himself the aerial daredevil Lindbergh and was known for parachuting stunts and for walking on the wings of his aircraft. Hmm. Eventually, he gave up on trying to make it as a Roaring Twenties evil Knievel and instead enrolled in the Army Air Service Cadet Program, graduating first in his class in 1925. (laughs) He joined the United States Air Mail Service as a postal pilot, which is slightly less flashy than a daredevil. Feels like a significant downgrade. You went through the military and then you were like, I'm going to deliver post. He might have been still stunting it up. He was like dangling off the wing of the plane and just tossing letters down chimneys. And <laughs> Air Santa? Get the fuck out of here. But his flirtation with obscurity did not last long, as he was catapulted to fame by winning the Ortigue Prize. Hmm. So we have to talk about these prizes. One of the reasons that aviation technology advanced as quickly as it did in the early 1900s was via competitions and prizes offered by rich entrepreneurs and aviation enthusiasts. You can see some similarities to today. Like, there was no NASA in the early 1900s. Much like today, all of the innovation in aerial technology was being driven by private industry and the military. Right. And now we have Tesla and Virgin and fuck with McGee. Yeah, it went from, like, entrepreneurs and now it's just uh, douchebags in space. Right. Mm -hmm. Douchebags in space! So the Ortigue Prize, named after New York real estate magnate Raymond Ortigue, was a $25,000 reward intended to inspire young aviators, specifically male aviators, Mm. to make terrible decisions and choose greed over common sense. Sold. It was a double dog dare with a reward that would have equaled around $300,000 today, Hmm. which is a lot. Uh, In fact, it would be enough money to fund a really lavish funeral. (laughs) 
because the Ortigue Prize involved almost certain death. Oh, yeah? I am glad I live in a time where there are plenty of other ways to win money that do not involve a 90% chance of boomsplode. <laughs> do tell. You could win that much money on TV today just by phrasing your answers in the form of a question. Dude, you could win that much money on TV 10 years ago by eating a bug. <laughs> I'm sure you can still get paid to eat bugs. It's yeah. A crazy world. Yeah. We don't kink shame. We don't. We don't kink shame. And that's getting put on a shirt, goddammit. We've said it enough times. So here was the official text of the offer of prize money. Mm -hmm. Quote, gentlemen. As a stimulus to the courageous aviators, I desire to offer, through the auspices and regulations of the Aero Club of America, a prize of $25,000 to the first aviator of any allied country crossing the Atlantic in one flight from Paris to New York or New York to Paris. All other details in your care. Yours very sincerely, Raymond Ortigue. Gentlemen, I wish to watch most of you die, or at least hear about it, in my local newspaper. Uh, and he continued, uh, may the odds be forever in your favor. Really? Are you not entertained? Okay. See, <laughs> fucking liar. I'm so gullible. They were all going to die. Okay. He knew it. Right. He was cackling. And hand rubbing. And Yes. There was some Mr. Burnsing all over the place. Dry hand washing. But he was foiled because he ended up having to pay it out. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for this introverted weirdo. <laughs> now, this would not be the first transatlantic flight. Mm. That was completed eight years earlier by John Alcock and Arthur Brown as the result of yet another competition and some prize money. Mm. That was a wild story. So those guys flew across the ocean in a biplane, uh, one of those Indiana Jones planes with the sandwich wings that look like they're held together by matchsticks and crepe paper. Yeah, yeah. Their intercom and heater and radio all failed pretty much immediately after takeoff. This was the problem with the, you know, a slapped together like model airplane that you're actually flying. Yeah, your go-kart fucking airframe is <laughs> it, probably not a good plane. It basically was a go-kart with like propellers. Right. And uh, also their exhaust pipe burst, emitting a terrible noise that made it impossible to communicate with each other or anyone else during the frigid 16-hour flight. Ah, wow. They hit a snowstorm, the carburetors iced up, and they lost control of the plane twice, spiraling toward the ocean in corkscrew death dives before regaining control. Also, maybe worst of all, uh, no in-flight Wi-Fi. <laughs> wasn't functional. Yeah. <laughs> Probably no complimentary beverage service. Just, I doubt there were even peanuts. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. And uh, 16 hours of horrible noise and not even being able to yell at each other and be heard... This is fucking awful. <laughs> I want to kill myself. It's probably for the best that they couldn't hear each other screaming and cursing each other for whoever had the idea. Right. <laughs> Fly across the Atlantic Ocean, they said. It'll be amazing and historical, they said. The heaters, that's oof. Geez. Yeah, in a snowstorm. And remember, you're flying, so it's cold anyway. Yeah, it's one of, the, it was one of those sunken cost things where, like, in the first quarter of the flight, I would have turned around. Like, okay, we're not going to make it, but you know what? We can start again. But, like, they just kept going, and at some point, the sunken cost fallacy thing becomes, like, actual sunken cost. We're like, you just got to keep going now. Right. And I know. I would have <laughs> immediately turned around as soon as, like, as soon as I, well, I would have never gotten in this thing in the first place. Let's be. Real. Yeah, let's be brutally honest. <laughs> it's not You'd have taken one look at that go-kart with fucking... <laughs> beanie propeller on it and been like oh fuck that noise i'm not a brave man no and i proudly wave that flag hmm. the flag of my people is the white surrender flag oh i thought the flag of your people was deep yeller <laughs> so they made it uh, mm. barely 
In addition to winning the 10,000 pounds promised by the Daily Mail, they were knighted and celebrated worldwide as heroes. Hmm. Alcock basked in his newfound fame for six months before he was killed in a plane crash. <laughs> that was the problem with this. It's like statistics. You're going to roll snake eyes. You're fighting against math mm. and physics. Mm. You're going to lose. Yeah. And gravity and a bunch of other things. So after the Ortigue was offered, for the better part of a decade, no one claimed the prize. But the prize did claim lives. Hmm. Multiple pilots were lost or killed in pursuit of the Paris to New York flight attempt. Meanwhile, Lindbergh was finally able to obtain funding from a couple of investors and also threw in some of his own money. And he obtained the custom-built Spirit of St. Louis monoplane. All right, I've heard of the Spirit of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. A monoplane is what we today might call a plane. <laughs> One wing, you know, no matchsticks and wax. Mm. And we don't even need to talk about the triplanes, which actually existed. Really? Yeah. Was it extra? Where was the extra wing? Was it? I'll just think of biplane, we'll add one more wing. It just was another layer of the sandwich. Yeah. So you were like the meat in the... You were, you were the meat in the stupid sandwich, yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that first transatlantic flight was from Newfoundland to Ireland, about 1,800 miles. Lindbergh's solo flight would be almost twice that distance. Hmm. By himself. Holy shit. No one to yell at. I'm sure he did a lot of just yelling it. Probably himself. It's cold as shit. I'm going to die. That's when you really do have to have a heart to heart with your own worst instincts. Yeah. So Lindbergh succeeded where others had failed. And claiming the Ortigue Prize hauled him into an unforgiving and possibly unprecedented spotlight. Hmm. People were, quote, behaving as though Lindbergh had walked on water, not flown over it. <laughs> The New York Times printed the page-wide headline, Lindbergh Does It. His mother's house in Detroit was mobbed by a crowd. He was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Calvin Coolidge and became the first ever Time Magazine Man of the Year, hmm. establishing an exclusive club that would grow to include such luminaries as Vladimir Putin, Mark Zuckerberg, and Adolf Hitler. Whoopsie! True story. Hitler was Man of the Year for 1938. He received the honor in January 1939, only months before he invaded Poland and kicked off World War II. Wow. Also in 1975, the man of the year was American women. Like, all of them. So, a very exclusive award shared with Mark Zuckerberg and about 110 million people with two X chromosomes. I feel like that's an oxymoron to say man of the year is all women. Because A, that's plural, and B, women. It was pretty silly. Yeah. But, you know, I hope American women felt good about being the man of the year. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of women sort of looked up from their massively difficult jobs, whatever they were doing, for very little, going, you fucking what? Yeah. Does this come with a raise? Yeah. No? Uh, okay. Go uh, fuck yourself. Yeah. Hmm. Lindbergh didn't seem to let the fame go to his head, at least at first. He was considered modest and not a showboater. He met his future wife in 1927, the daughter of an ambassador to Mexico, who also happened to be one of his financial advisors. So the guy knew what Lindbergh was worth at that point and was like, uh, hey, Lindbergh, have you met my daughter? <laughs> Lindbergh was popularly considered a paragon of virtue and even criticized other pilots for being facile regarding relationships. Facile? Mm. Fuck boys. Yeah. yeah that's I what mean he meant. Fuckboys conjures a different image, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> I like how passive-aggressive everyone was hmm. in the early 1900s. At the risk of impugning their moral fortitude, I must refer to my peers as facile in their romantic pursuits. 
filthy man horse. <laughs> did, I, did I not make that clear? Filthy slut bunnies. <laughs> Lindbergh, the paragon of virtue, would later cheat on his wife, fathering five children with a pair of German sisters. Well, that's not facile. In addition to two with his secretary. <laughs> facile indeed. Quote, ten days before he died, Lindbergh wrote to each of his European mistresses, imploring them to maintain the utmost secrecy about his illicit activities with them, even after his death. Mm. Paragon of virtue. <laughs> but back before all of these sordid affairs, the Lindberghs had a son in 1930. Mm. And after expending a ton of creative energy and brainstorming with flowcharts, they decided to name the boy Charles Lindbergh. Really? That name had been working out pretty well so far. Yeah. If it ain't broke. If it ain't Baruch. At 9 p.m. on March 1st, 1932, one-year-old Charles Lindbergh was abducted from the second-floor nursery of his New Jersey home. Hmm. The kidnapper left a ransom note in barely legible rambling script on the windowsill, demanding $50,000. Hmm. The text of the note read, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you were to deliver the money. We warn you for making any ding public or for notify the police the child is in gut care. I think that meant the child is in good care. Or in someone's gut. Who knows? We have eaten the child. <laughs> child was delicious. Uh, continuing. Indication for all letters are signature and three Howells, H-O-H-L-S. This is very confusing. I have no idea what that last bit meant. <laughs> Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. The signature to which the kidnappers were referring was a scribbled image at the bottom, like a Venn diagram, two blue circles intersecting with a red circle in the middle. Uh, there was a hole through the red circle and two more holes punched on either side. So obviously this was how the kidnappers intended to sign all of their letters, and because presumably no one else would have seen the letter, the symbol would provide verification that the letters were authentic, rather than from some opportunistic faker who might have heard about the case. Hmm. And they were correct in assuming that no one would see the letter, as long as by no one, they meant a thousand police officers and FBI agents and handwriting analysts and some sneaky journalists. <laughs> it wasn't a great plan. No. <laughs> I just can't get over how it started with Dear Sir. Yeah. I just I don't even know what to say about that. It was a different time. It was. That does not seem like the circumstance for honorifics and politeness. No. It feels like, you know, sup, bitch, would be more of an opener for a ransom note for your child. <laughs> to whom it may concern. Yeah. <laughs> with all due respect, we must inform you that we plan to dismember your progeny and urinate on its headless torso. Should we not receive in some. Sincerely. The criminals. <laughs> Within hours of the kidnapping, the crime scene was mobbed by sightseers who trampled the area around the house and most likely obliterated any potential evidence that might have been collected. The press went wild. It was just a sensation worldwide. A second ransom note arrived five days later. Dear sir, we have warned you not... Ah, this is so hard to read. We have warned you not to make anything public. Also notify the police. Now you have to take consequences means we will have to hold the baby until everything is quiet. We cannot make any appointments just now. We know very well what it means to us. I, well, that's, that, that makes one of us. It is really necessary to make a world affair out of this, or to get your baby back as soon as possible to settle those affair in a quick way will be better for both. Yeah. <laughs> Look at what I'm trying to read. 
<laughs> read toward the end there. You read it. Okay. But we will note do so until the police is out of the CAC and the <laughs> pappers are quite. <laughs> right. <laughs> the kidnapping we prepared in years. So we are prepared for every ding. Mm-hmm. D-I-N-G. That, and that's enough of that. Yeah, that's enough of that. So now the ransom was up to 70K, but the details still had yet to be worked out. The Lindberghs appointed an intermediary to negotiate with the kidnappers, and the kidnappers used their third ransom note to nix that idea because, you know, these guys are no dummies. Mm-mm. They were like, don't try to be sneaky and you know mess with our infallible, well-prepared master plan. <laughs> this wasn't a master. This was like an apprentice plan. <laughs> a retired school principal named John Condon published an offer in a local newspaper to act as intermediary, and he also said that he would add $1,000 to the ransom. And the thieves were like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> They're like, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, there's something we really like about this Condon guy. Yeah. We're, we're okay with him. Mm. So this is when the operation went full Mission Impossible. Mm. The next ransom note was delivered directly to Condon by a taxicab driver who had received it from a random stranger. This most recent scribbled-ass nonsense letter directed Condon to a particular stone near a subway station. Underneath the stone was the sixth letter, which instructed him to meet a stranger at a cemetery. Uh, this gets better and better. And that's when I'd be out. <laughs> I resign as intermediary. Fuck this noise. Condon met in the cemetery with a man who called himself John. Uh, I'm assuming that was a fake name, but I also wouldn't be shocked if these geniuses were like, you know what they'll never expect? A real name. <laughs> it is legit amazing how many of these crimes of the century were committed by borderline imbeciles, as we will see. <laughs> you can get away with a lot if people have low expectations of your capabilities. Truly. So John, in quotation marks, told Condon that he would provide some token that would prove that he actually had possession of the child. Mm. Hopefully not Big Lebowski style. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want a toddler's toe. No. The kidnapper or kidnappers would, in fact, send the kids pajamas. That's not going to make the kid very happy. So now my child is naked. And thanks. Afraid. It's very comforting. Yes. This ransom note scavenger hunt continued. There were a total of 12 ransom notes received. And meanwhile, the FBI was employing all of their latest techniques to create a criminal profile. They determined that John was most likely of German descent, but living in America. They also created an artistic rendering of the mysterious German, which, spoiler alert, did not look much like the eventually unmasked perpetrator. <laughs> and I love that they're just like, and he's German. Why? Because they're the last people we fought, and I don't know. I mean, they ended up being right. And I think mm. they gathered that from the specific types of spelling mistakes that mm. a German person would have made if they didn't weren't super familiar with English. Oh. Uh, I mean, I was trying to think of like, you know, they would have screwed up verbs and nouns and shit. That might be part of it too. It was I think the misspellings and the grammar issues and maybe even punctuation, mm-hmm. it all was kind of fed into the like new FBI profiling systems and they came out with a German guy. This was, as we'll see, one of the first cases where they really employed a lot of forensic evidence. These were things that had been in development for a long time, but really the FBI sort of used everything in their arsenal for this one and did end up uh, getting the profile fairly correct, except for the sketch, which I think looked, again, like generic Caucasian. Kind of all FBI sketches. Remember the D.B. Cooper one? Right. That's a dude. Like, And that way, they kind of cover their bases. Like any dude they find, it's like, yeah, it kind of looks like that dude. <laughs> they're they're fortune tellers. You will meet the Unabomber today. Like it has a nose, right? <laughs> Perp also had a nose. What do you want from me? And sunglasses, of course. Duh. 
Via ransom notes and responses in the press, the final dollar amount was negotiated to $50,000. Wow, that came down. <laughs> yeah, uh, not brilliant negotiators. <laughs> You're supposed to go up, genius, not down. This is all part of the master plan. <laughs> if what they wanted was $50,000, it worked. Fair enough. That sum was delivered to the so-called John on April 12, 1932, in exchange for the final note, lucky number 13, which contained instructions for locating the child who was supposedly on a boat near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Wow. He was not. Hmm. No trace of the child was ever found in Martha's Vineyard. However, 10 days later, a tiny body was discovered next to the highway about five miles from the Lindbergh home. The details are pretty grim. The child was in an advanced state of decomposition and had most likely been killed on the night of the kidnapping via blunt force trauma to the head. Some limbs were missing. The predation afterwards, I hope? I think so, because I've never found a solid explanation for that part. Yeah. It doesn't seem like we really know why the perpetrators suddenly murdered and dismembered the kid, or if that was the plan all along, or if he just murdered the kid and the kid was, like you said, maybe you know a coyote or something came along. The police quickly announced a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the kidnapper. Mm. Which, you know, cool, but... Didn't you just give the kidnapper twice that amount? I was just about to say, I was like, so half that. We're half as interested as this guy was in stealing the baby as catching the dude who stole the baby. I guess I kind of get that. I was not going to bring the baby back. He'd probably give more than 50000 if you could resuscitate the decomposed uh, corpse of his child. I'd give substantially more than that to see him Jesus the baby back. Sure. Actually, maybe not. That's like a pet cemetery situation. Be careful what you wish for. Mm. You know, I don't want, I'm not paying anything for a zombie baby. That baby brokey. I don't want it. <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I would like negotiate that. If I, if I knew who did it, I'd be like, well, you were going to give, you gave the dude $50,000. If I give the guy to you, if I get him caught, you're going to get the $50,000 back. He hasn't spent it that fast. And then you're going to give me twenty five. You're saving twenty five thousand dollars. See, that was very rational. I was more just thinking like any normal parent would, which was I would have offered like fifty grand just so that I at least so that I could find the dude and kneecap him somewhere quietly. Yeah, I don't know what is revenge worth, you know, at that point. Priceless. <laughs> if you, if I had Lindbergh money, yeah, I'd have been like, I'm gonna pay what it takes. It's a visa. Getting vengeance on the people who kill your baby, priceless. For everything else, there's Visa. So the bulk of the ransom, $40,000, had been paid via gold certificates. And we covered the gold standard in our recent cryptocurrency episode. Yep. You will note that the kidnapping coincided with the government's order to turn in all gold and gold certificates in exchange for greenbacks. So the serial numbers of the gold certificates, as you would imagine, were distributed nationwide to banks so that they would know immediately when they were exchanged and could determine where they had been spent. Mm. So eventually, the gold certificates started to trickle in, and each time one was redeemed, the feds tracked it to the location where it was spent. They zeroed in on the boroughs of New York City. Mm. Most of the bills were being spent at corner stores, and the description of the man spending the bills fit the description of the mysterious John. Mm. The big break in the case finally came on September 18th, 1934, when a guy matching John's description spent a $10 certificate at a gas station in New York City. The clerk who received the bill was suspicious about receiving a gold certificate as payment and had secretly written down the license plate of the man's car. The automobile was registered to one Bruno Richard Hauptmann from the Bronx. Hmm. He was arrested shortly thereafter, and all of the pieces fell into place. 
a native German who had snuck into America a decade prior, Hauptmann was in possession of $13,000 worth of the gold certificates from the ransom. His handwriting matched the ransom notes, and he had a rap sheet for robbery. Hmm. His motive was assumed to have been the obvious one, financial benefit, but there was never a solid explanation for why he might have killed the child. Prosecutors would later assert that the child had been fussy and loud and Hopman had panicked and disposed of the baby. The trial was an absolute media circus in America and around the world. It might have seemed open and shut, but there were some weird inconsistencies. Condon, who had met numerous times with the kidnapper, failed to pick Hoptman out of a lineup. Hmm. Cameras were allowed in the courtroom, but journalists were forbidden to record witness testimony, uh, which is kind of like saying cameras are allowed in a football stadium as long as they don't record the game. Man, that's fucking odd sauce. Journalists flouted the rule. And videos of the sparring between Hauptmann and the prosecutor caused such a sensation that the American Bar Association banned recording in courtrooms for decades. Hmm. Another aspect fueling the fascination with the trial was the fact that all of the evidence was circumstantial. There was no smoking gun. So this was one of the first widely followed trials that was prosecuted via forensic evidence and deductive reasoning. Hauptmann was found guilty and executed by electric chair on April 3rd, 1936. I mean... Yeah, fair play. No, I mean, if he actually did it, he definitely earned it. But one of the things that we know from, you know, various dives down this old hole is forensic, quote-unquote forensic evidence from back then also is just fucking full of holes. Definitely circumstantial, but those circumstances are pretty ironclad. Mm. He had $13,000 of the gold certificates that were from the ransom. He also had like a chunk of wood in his house that definitely seemed to be a piece of that ladder that had been used. This was a pretty ironclad case. I don't think this guy didn't do it. Hmm. Okay. But who knows? Next crime of the century. There he is. I included this one mostly because the aftermath of this crime is still extremely relevant today. Hmm. And it affects us all, even if we're not aware. For instance, here's something you already know. The Mona Lisa is one of the most famous paintings in history. Yes. Everyone is familiar with the vaguely smiling, smug-ass Mona Lisa. <laughs> I have that. never... Figured out that expression. Hey, 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 I put lubriderm in your sandwich. That's yeah, that look. She looks like she's getting away with something. Yeah. Here's something you might not know. The Mona Lisa is only world famous because it was the central figure in a crime of the century. What? That is literally the only reason any of us have heard of that painting. The Mona Lisa was considered an unremarkable and obscure work by Leonardo da Vinci before it was stolen from a wall of the Louvre on August 21st, 1911. Really? Presumably part of the reason that thieves targeted the Mona Lisa is because it's tiny. I know a comedian, uh, Red Scott, shout out to Red, who went to the Louvre, and I remember he used to say, if you have seen a picture of the Mona Lisa on your phone, you have seen an enlarged version of the Mona Lisa. <laughs> That's an exaggeration, but not by much. The painting is 30 inches by 21 inches, 77 centimeters by 53 centimeters. If you were an art collector and this painting was the featured centerpiece of your gallery, that gallery is going to look pretty sparse. You do not want a gallery centerpiece that is dwarfed by the exit sign. <laughs> it's tiny. Tiny. I got it. Also, it's important to know that the Louvre was not always a massive tourist destination. I don't know if you've seen the inside of this place today, but on a typical pre-COVID day, the gallery that holds the Mona Lisa is, like, uncomfortable, to say the least. Have you <laughs> seen pictures of this? No. Every single day, it is packed pre-COVID, with a throng of people holding their cell phones in the air, trying to zoom in and get a photo of this stupid little postage stamp-sized painting. Couldn't they figure out some sort of order of operations? Like, you know, all right, we all go in at five in a group, and you only get 
20 seconds with a fucking thing. Yeah, you just like file in. It's like a photo op. <laughs> Everyone gets to stand next to the Mona Lisa and like put their arms around it and give her like money ears. Right. That's probably why they didn't do it because that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I just want them to keep moving. That's all. I don't want to be pressed up against 19 million borscht-filled Germans. <laughs> that does make more sense, though. They should have an orderly line. Because otherwise, I mean, it's like a mosh pit. It's crazy. Yeah. But it sure as hell wasn't like that in 1911. In fact, at the time, the Mona Lisa wasn't even the most famous painting in that room of the Louvre, let alone the entire world. And looking back, I can see why it wasn't very famous. Hmm. If I walked past that painting in like a museum and it didn't have this mystique around it that I've grown up with, mm. I wouldn't give it a second look. Nah. I've never seen it live, so yeah. So the Louvre in 1911 has been described as a trophy case for the French monarchy. Among its trophies, it held many of the art pieces Napoleon had plundered during his campaigns. Because remember, Leonardo da Vinci, not French. He was <laughs> weird Italian. Why does the Louvre have a bunch of works by one of Italy's most famous citizens? Hmm. It's a question to keep in mind for later. Oh. But the point is that the Louvre wasn't an international tourist attraction. The Mona Lisa was not the most famous painting in the world by a long stretch. And museum security in 1911 was a bit light. <laughs> there was no crisscrossing maze of laser beams. No? Mm. At the time, the Louvre was closed on Mondays. And in Paris in the early 1900s, Sunday evenings were notorious for drinking and partying. So many of the security guards would have been, let's say, not bringing their A-game. So they'd have been hung over as shit. <laughs> at 8.30 a.m., the maintenance director noticed the Mona Lisa was missing. At first, he assumed it had been removed for a photo shoot or for cleaning. No one realized what had happened until the following day, when a painter who is slightly less well-known than Leonardo da Vinci, Luis Baroud, showed up to paint an image of the Mona Lisa. Hmm. He wanted to paint the painting. Yeah. You know, when you have no inspiration... Well, what happened was the museum had recently installed a glass cover over the painting, which was supposed to protect it from vandalism, because a different painting had recently been slashed by a self-described anarchist. Wow. That's just a D-bag. That's all that is. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. There are two things in this world I hate. Laws and tiny paintings. <laughs> it's not even anarchy. You're like, yeah, you, you paid your fee to get in there. Yeah. You were wandering around, I'm pretty sure, around the fucking velvet ropes. And you're just like... Anarchy! Slash painting runoff. So Luis Baroud had been planning to paint an image of a woman fixing her hair in the reflection of the glass covering over the Mona Lisa uh, in order to point out how distracting that glass pane could be for museum goers who were trying to view the artwork. Hmm. So it was kind of a bitchy painting. Ah, this glass, it gets in the way of the uh, dust settling so beautifully on the painting. Uh, I feel like this should be free. It's like, I want all paintings to be unprotected and subject to the whims of anarchists. Subject to the whims of destructive assholes. Making a painting to register a complaint. Like, you could just say something, but uh, I'm going to paint my complaint. So French. Mm -hmm. His plan was complicated by the fact that on that particular day, there was no glass covering for him to paint. Hmm. The Mona Lisa, as they quickly determined, after not having quickly determined it for over 24 hours, <laughs> had been stolen. Yes. So we're going to unravel the mystery, but first, let's unravel some history. Oh, God. Go ahead. Don't, don't be a hater. Why do, why do I feel like I'm in the reading rainbow right now? Sick rhymes. <laughs> Jesus. The Mona Lisa was painted on a piece of wood by Leonardo da Vinci in the 1500s, and it is believed to depict the wife of wealthy silk trader Francesco del Giocondo. Mm. The woman was not named Mona Lisa. Mona is shorthand for Madonna, the Virgin Mary. And it was an honorific in Italy in the 1500s. The woman's name was Lisa, and Mona Lisa just means Madame Lisa or Miss Lisa. Huh. 
although the woman in the painting might not actually be Lisa at all. There is no solid evidence of Giocondo commissioning the painting or providing any payment, so the mystery of Mona Lisa's identity will probably never be solved. But that's their best guess. I see. The Mona Lisa has no eyebrows or eyelashes. I always wondered why the face looked weird to me. And uh, bingo. Eyebrows and eyelashes are actually kind of important when it comes to not creeping people the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, Da Vinci himself was a bit hungover when he was doing that. Just couldn't quite finish it. It was a Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Apologies to anyone who doesn't have eyebrows and eyelashes. That is, I know there are medical conditions, but mm. it's also pretty easy to paint those suckers on. So don't feel obligated. I won't stare or mock you. I will side-eye the shit out of you, but I, I, I won't openly mock you. So now back to 1911. Yes. The museum administrators started frantically searching for the painting, and they found its frame discarded in a staircase, removed from the painting, but not mangled. Uh, the painting seemed to have been very deftly removed. After determining that the painting was not on site, they contacted the authorities. In the early 20th century, the world was more connected than it had ever been as a result of the telegraph, and so news of the theft exploded like a bombshell across the Western world. Hmm. The Western world was very bored in 1911. Yeah. <laughs> there was not a lot going on on that particular week. And to be fair, the theft makes for a great story. It does. To give you an idea of how well-known the painting wasn't at the time, the Washington Post ran a news story on the front page titled Priceless Art Treasure Gone, accompanied by a giant black-and-white photo of a completely different painting. <laughs> Classic American newspaper. But the French police felt that this caper was a huge embarrassment, and they were determined to solve the case and rehabilitate their image. And meanwhile, the rest of the world uh, just really enjoys laughing at the French. So the story had all of the necessary elements to make it a massive media event. I like it. During their investigation of the Louvre, French police were able to find a single clear fingerprint on the painting's frame. Now, at the time, fingerprint identification was in its infancy. The police did have a database of over 750,000 physical pieces of cardstock with fingerprints on them. Wow. Multiple fingerprints per card. Just imagine being the poor bastard who had to search through that fucking database, though. It wasn't some, like, you know, identifying. It was, uh, nope. Uh, no. Uh, this is not it. That is not it easier. Uh, shit. This was not a great time to be a detective. Mm -mm. It's just If the fingerprint didn't match the first five cards, I'm just going to let that guy go. <laughs> he got away with it. What do you want? But when it comes to detectives, Paris actually had one of the best on the case. Louis Lapine, an innovator in the field of forensic science, nicknamed the little man with a big stick. Wait. The man is named Lapine. And mm. he's the little man with the big stick. The nickname apparently referred to his skill in handling mobs. Uh, with so his big stick. stick. <laughs> Louis did come up with some intelligent approaches to the case of the missing semi-famous painting. First, he was able to narrow down the time window of the theft by interviewing employees as to when each of them last saw the painting and connecting the dots. Next, he placed a mock-up of the painting back on the wall and instructed some of his officers to attempt to steal it. Because they didn't know how the frame was hung, there were four metal pegs securing it to the wall. It took them a while to get the frame off, and they damaged it in the process. Hmm. He then instructed some museum employees to remove it, and they accomplished the task in like five seconds. Ah. So he began to suspect that the thieves had at least one man on the inside, uh, one or more employees of the Louvre. This significantly narrowed down the number of fingerprints to compare. He began fingerprinting all of the employees and comparing them to his one print. When none of them matched, he expanded the scope of the investigation to include companies that might have done contract work in the Louvre. 
One of those contractors was the company that installed the glass covering for the Mona Lisa. Hmm. All of the employees of that contractor showed up for fingerprinting, except one. Weird. And that one employee, Vincenzo Perugia, had a criminal record which included abusing a prostitute and theft. The only problem was that Louis Lapine refused to believe that an ignorant, poor, petty thief could have pulled off a heist of this magnitude. So French. The profile in his mind was of some type of evil genius or sophisticated burglar working for a syndicate of dastardly art thieves. Perugia did come across as kind of an idiot. Well, yeah, but I mean, I just love that his in his mind, no, no, this cannot be. Not this blithering idiot. Look at him. I must know. It must have been Moriarty. Yes. <laughs> I think he just, you know, he didn't want it to be. Like, yeah. it was like we're going to look even worse than we look now if it's this guy. I, would, I think he was like, I'd rather not solve this case than have this guy be the solution to this case. Right. So this guy who was trouble chewing oatmeal stole your painting. Yeah, it's better to just be like, they were, these thieves were so sophisticated that no one could have got them. Right. Yeah. He is the scapegoat. Yeah. As a result, detectives let Perugia go without even bothering to fingerprint him. E. To give you an idea of how far off track the police were at this point, after letting go of the actual criminal, they promptly arrested Pablo Picasso. <laughs> Fucking what? Picasso fit the profile that Lapine had devised. He was an international art expert and artist. Plus, Picasso was in possession of uh, some stolen items from the Louvre. <laughs> so, really? So there was that. Holy shit. He had, in fact, purchased some figurines that had been stolen from the Louvre in order to paint them into a scene. So it was just, you know, an artist being a bit of a dipshit as opposed to an actual criminal mastermind. Yeah, masterminds don't uh, paint the evidence of the theft into the paintings, which he did. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, not so much. Mm-hmm. This is a mastermind the way the Lindbergh kidnapper was a mastermind. Yeah. <laughs> An apprentice mind. But the arrest of a famous artist in connection with the theft of the work of a famous artist fueled the tabloid-style sensationalist coverage of the affair. The entire world was now riveted. But months passed with no breaks in the case, and the world eventually began to move on. The following year, the Titanic sank, and the world had a new fixation. <laughs> Also, as we now know, Kim Il-sung was born. <laughs> and the people's iceberg claimed one more victim. But despite the fact that the world had moved on to focus on the Titanic, the Mona Lisa was not ready to sink into obscurity. Mm-hmm. Nice pun. You like that? No, not yeah. even a little. There was a boat involved. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> so 28 months after the theft, an Italian art dealer in Florence named Alfredo Geri placed an ad in the local paper announcing that he was quote, a buyer at good prices of art objects of every sort. He quickly received a letter from a man who claimed to possess the Mona Lisa and offered to sell it for the bargain price of today's equivalent of 500,000 pounds. The letter was signed Leonardo. Mm. Clever. Yeah. The thief claimed that he had stolen the painting to return it to its home in Italy, and his only stipulation was that the painting never be returned to France. (laughs) Fair. It's fair. It was a spite theft. Hmm. The art dealer contacted a local museum director named Giovanni Poggi, and the two of them met the thief in his hotel room, where they were able to verify the authenticity of the painting. Hmm. Here's basically what happened next. They said, uh, we're just going to go ahead and take this off your hands and make sure it's real, and then we will send you the money. And the thief was like, sweet, looking forward to that. And the two men just uh, walked the hell out of there with the Mona Lisa under their arms and immediately called the police. (laughs) So now I kind of feel for Lapine because, yeah, like this guy, 
wow. <laughs> Just holy crap. The police promptly arrested Vincenzo Perugia, a blue-collar Italian who seemed to have nothing going for him except animosity toward the French, limited access to the Louvre, and a whole lot of moxie. Mm-hmm. Over the following weeks, police were able to piece together what had happened. Perugia had observed the lax security of the Louvre while he was installing the glass covering over the Mona Lisa. And obviously he had working knowledge of how the painting was mounted and how it could be quickly and easily removed. There are conflicting accounts of how the theft went down, but Perugia's own account, provided during the police interrogation, seems the most credible. He had entered the building at 7 a.m. through the worker entrance, dressed in a smock worn by the museum cleaners. He waited until the coast was clear, and then plucked the painting from the wall, removed his smock, wrapped it around the painting, and walked out the door. It's a smash and grab, dude. That's all that was. He didn't even smash anything. It was just a grab. It was just a grab. (laughs) Last crime of the century for today. Yes. So Roscoe Arbuckle was rotund. He sounds rotund. I'm sorry, but Roscoe Arbuckle sounds like a rotund man's name. That doesn't ring a bell? No. No, it might. I I, I know John Arbuckle, which is the Garfield dude, but that's about it. Okay. So, uh, like I said, he was a large man. Mm. So large, in fact, that the childhood nickname bestowed on him by schoolyard bullies stuck with him throughout his life and would eventually become a world-famous stage name as he rose to prominence in comedic films of the early 1900s. Once an impoverished child from a broken home, by 1919, Fatty Arbuckle was a millionaire and the highest paid comedy star in America, beloved around the world, until suddenly he wasn't. (laughs) As one of the first major stars of the silent film era, Arbuckle was described as a chubby Charlie Chaplin, and in fact many of his movies are interchangeable with scenes and films by The Tramp, as Chaplin was known. (laughs) They both famously did that little uh, shoe dance by spearing pieces of bread with forks and then performing high kicks with them. Oh, right. Yeah. Arbuckle was also extremely limber and athletic despite his size and very coordinated. One of my favorite of his film scenes involves him flipping pancakes. He's like tossing them over his shoulder and catching them with the pan and then bouncing them off his knees and feet like a hacky sack. It's very cool. Hmm. Okay. But most of the comedy in his films was pretty mean spirited, centered around making fun of his weight. Hmm. Arbuckle was a huge hit among the children of the era because uh, kids are assholes. (laughs) <laughs> have yet to grow that whole moral thing yeah it's not their fault they're just kids yeah. but you know they suck <laughs> fair enough i guess arbuckle would initially make his mark on vaudeville stages before switching to silent films and he would even cameo as one of the bumbling silent film era police officers known as the keystone cops oh uh, yeah these i've heard of universal symbols of incompetence mm. The Keystone Cops were so popular that they became a descriptive phrase. To this day, any group that thoroughly mishandles the situation might be referred to as a bunch of Keystone Cops. <laughs> That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. I would like that to be our legacy, to become an actual insult. <laughs> <laughs> if you mishandle your facts or do too much research and too little sleep, you will pull the miffy. In the early 1900s, Northern California was considered a playground for Hollywood stars. Actors who faced scrutiny in Los Angeles could escape to NorCal to relax and let loose, which is just what Roscoe had planned for Memorial Day, September 5th, 1921. Hmm. Along with his friends Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback, Arbuckle checked into San Francisco's St. Francis Hotel and promptly began boozing it up. If you're wondering how it was so easy to throw a high-profile booze-fueled bash in the Prohibition era, check out episode number 70, Dry America. Yeah. Prohibition was a farce. Prohibition was nonsense. Especially for the wealthy. Yeah. 
pretty soon women started to show up, including Virginia Rapp, a youngish, aspiring actress. There is some debate about her age. Despite what Wikipedia will tell you, she was most likely at least 30 at the time. Hmm. Virginia was accompanied by a friend she had met recently, uh, Bambina Maud Delmont, oh. a sketchy character with a rap sheet that included extortion, prostitution, and blackmail. What happened next will never be conclusively resolved, but at least a few of the facts are indisputable. Hmm. First, uh, Roscoe Arbuckle had second-degree burns on his ass. <laughs> that is completely unrelated to the subsequent death and murder trial, hmm. but I just think it's important to point out because I really wanted to bring it up. <laughs> fair I, I appreciate it he had been at a mechanics garage in los angeles a few days before and he had sat down on an acid soaked rag which had eaten through his pants and scorched his buttocks <laughs> and probably soured his mood yeah he initially wanted to cancel the san francisco trip as a result of his flambéed derriere mm. but he was convinced to go by fishback who purchased a rubber padded ring to ease arbuckle's butt pain during the drive <laughs> It's a good friend. It is. Whoever buys you an ass donut really cares. I would take care of your ass, Duncan. I'm sure. Until you, you know, lost it or punctured it on purpose just to watch me wince. I promise I won't puncture your ass to my watch ass you wince or for any My other ass reason. ring, not my ass. <laughs> Definitely won't puncture your ass ring. <laughs> Can't state this at all. God damn it. None of alcohol in the world. <laughs> if I ever fall off the wagon, you got a shot. Protect my ass ring. Got it. <laughs> Check my ass ring at the door. <laughs> so at some point during the booze-soaked party, Virginia Rapp was discovered writhing on the bed in room 1219, one of three rooms booked for the festivities. She was clawing at her stomach, attempting to tear off her clothes, clearly in immense pain. Hmm. Note that her clothes were still on. Right. The hotel doctor was summoned, and assuming she was suffering from alcohol poisoning, he administered morphine. Ooh. It's like a fight fire with napalm situation. When in doubt, heroin. Yeah. It's kind of always been our motto. Pretty much. When boom explode, heroin. Yes. <laughs> I was just laughing because it, it, it sounds stupid, and then we think about the ways that we've solved problems in the past. It's like, no, no, that actually makes sense. Yeah, true. So over the next two days, various doctors were summoned, but Virginia was kept in the hotel room and wasn't sent to a hospital until it was too late. Arbuckle was not present for any of this, BTW. He had departed for Los Angeles, headed home to his wife, who would remain solidly in his corner throughout the aftermath. Hmm. Virginia was finally sent to the hospital some 48 hours after the onset of symptoms, but would slip into a coma and succumb to her ailment. So those are the facts. Everything else is conjecture. But there is pretty solid consensus when it comes to what didn't happen. Hmm. Doctors found no evidence of rape, no traumatic injuries to the body that would have resulted in death. Virginia died from a ruptured bladder. She suffered from extreme urinary tract infections, and various witnesses would later claim that she had experienced similar reactions to alcohol in the past. However, one supposed witness told a different story. Mm. The aforementioned blackmailing extortion prostitute, Bambina Maud Delmont, immediately implicated Roscoe Arbuckle, claiming that he had raped and murdered her friend. However, her account shifted wildly over the following weeks. She variously claimed she had known Virginia for years, then later stated they had just met. She vacillated on pretty much all of the night's details. Uh, oh, and there was a little matter of a telegram that she sent to attorneys after Virginia's death, which read, quote, We have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here. Chance to make some money out of him. Ouch. All in caps. I think that might just be how telegrams were formatted, but I'm pretty sure she would have sent it that way regardless. Yeah. The newspapers went all in. 
piling on Arbuckle and splashing sensationalized accounts of the supposed sexual assault all over the front page. William Randolph Hearst, newspaper owner and media mogul, had a field day with this story. He was the Rupert Murdoch of his era and a massive proponent of so-called yellow journalism. Mm. Rumors and innuendo swirled. The stories from the evening were embellished beyond reason. Within weeks, the prevailing narrative held that Arbuckle had ruptured Virginia's bladder both by the weight of his body on hers during the supposed brutal rape and also by penetrating her with a Coke bottle, Ah. a a random allegation which had never been mentioned by any of the actual partygoers. Arbuckle was convicted in the court of public opinion long before his first trial even commenced. But the jury would not agree with the press. They failed to convict, but they also failed to find him innocent. The jury deadlocked at 10-2 with the majority voting to acquit. The next trial was an inverted copy of the first, a hung jury that voted majority to convict. Hmm. By the third trial, however, the defense had learned their lesson. They employed tactics that would become standard practice in later years when defending men from rape allegations. They smeared and slandered the victim. (laughs) Jesus. They implied that Virginia had abortions in her past, that she was a loose woman and a gold digger. Hmm. Which is terrible and untrue, but also does not make Roscoe Arbuckle a rapist. Right. Remember that consensus I mentioned? Historians have overwhelmingly sided with a belief in his innocence. In the third trial, the jury only took a few minutes to find Arbuckle fully innocent, and they went even further. The jury officially apologized to Roscoe Arbuckle, releasing a statement that read, quote, Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. There was not the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story, which we all believe. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. And they did and lived happily ever after. (laughs) Despite his acquittal, Arbuckle's career never recovered. He was briefly banned from performing under his name as a result of the Hayes Code, the precursor to motion picture ratings which enforced moral standards in film. Eight months later, the decision was reversed, but by then it was too late. Arbuckle stepped behind the camera and began directing movies under an assumed name, William B. Goodrich. Hmm. Will be good. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like one of my puns. <laughs> no, no props for that. Nope. Arbuckle never recovered his former stature uh, career-wise. Hmm. He was still pretty. He's still pretty por- Portly. Mm-hmm. And he died of a heart attack in a hotel room, ironically, in 1933. Oh, irony. You weigh a heavy hand. If I were him, I probably would have just avoided hotel rooms. Yeah, from that on, dude. Just stay at a B&B. Jesus. He had friends. He was rich. Hmm. He had hoes in different area codes. He could have he could have found somewhere to stay. Yeah. So that's the end of this episode. Holy crap. That was a deep dive. You weren't kidding, but that a lot of that was pretty interesting. So this time, uh, we're not going to do the whole rate rep review thing. All we want you to do is do one thing. Tell a friend, tell a pony, tell a cop. Tell whoever, but rep it out. That's all you got to do, and that's all we ask. Until next time, and forever after, knowledge is power. Sleep is overrated.